Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Anthony Saccaro. He's the president of Providence Financial and Insurance Services uh, based in Woodland Hills, California. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. Let's just start with your background a little bit and uh, how you created Providence Financial. Yeah, I uh, began in the industry in the late 90s at the end of a very long bull run. As you know, all the way through the 80s and 90s, the market did as well as it as it has done in, in two centuries, as a matter of fact. And so when I got in the industry, I realized there was another crash coming. And so I built my entire business model around helping individuals protect themselves from that crash and the future crashes to come. So we specialize in uh, everything other than the stock market and helping our clients earn a 4 to 7% rate of return without that risk. Now, you invo- you're involved in something called SAFE, which is the Scranton Academy for financial education. Describe what that is about a little bit and how do you participate in it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, David Scran, the uh, SAFE's owner and founder, started this uh, nonprofit organization uh, a couple of years ago. And the primary purpose of the organization is to educate baby boomers and seniors about their options in retirement. Um, SAFE realizes that the most expensive purchase that a senior will ever make is their retirement. And there's a lot of choices in there that are irrevocable, a lot of decisions that uh, really can't be undone. And so the, the bottom line is SAFE's entire goal is to uh, have create a network of financial advisors. And currently, I think there's, I don't know, 100, 150 financial advisors throughout the nation that are willing to go out and dedicate their time and uh, get the word out to Americans and retirees about how to protect themselves and, and how to make right decisions in retirement. And that's, that's what our goal is. And I, I'm privileged to serve on the board of SAFE. Now, you've written a lot about making your money work in a low-rate environment. First of all, uh, are you convinced we're going to have low rates for a long period of time going forward here? I think we are. Um, If you look at the history of quantitative easing in Japan, Japan has been doing for 23 years what we've been doing now for five or six years. And and they're not fighting high interest rates. They're fighting extremely low interest rates. And I think if there's a precedent to be set, Japan's probably the only country that we can really look at. Um, and so I do think that we have low interest rates for years to come. That doesn't mean that they're not going to go up in the next, uh, in the next year, like, uh, like Janet Yellen has said. I think, in fact, that they probably will go up. But when the market crashes, then they'll come right back down again. Um, the fact is the government doesn't want to have high rates because they've got to pay the interest on $17 trillion of debt. And if you have a credit card, you know, do you want your rate to be high or do you want it to be low? And, and the answer is obvious. That's the same thing with the government. They want the rates to be low as well. Are you concerned about deflation? I mean, that seems to be what's going on right now with commodity prices falling interest rates falling, Europe has negative interest rates. Are you concerned that deflation is a real possibility? It is a real possibility. I'm not so concerned about it, though. Um, But I'm also not concerned about inflation. I I think that the economy is going to continue to to prod along and, 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 and continue to grow over the next 10 and 15 and 20 years, but at a, at a very slow pace. I, I, so, so although deflation is there in the back of my mind, it's not a huge concern for me. Um, if some of this money that the government has been printing actually makes it out into the consumer's hands, then really I think inflation is something that could be, could be more problematic, but not anytime soon. Not anytime soon. I, I think inflationary worries are probably at least five to ten years down the road, along with uh, along with permanent interest rate rate adjustments. 
So it sounds like a lot of your clients are in this kind of quandary right now, which is they've got a certain amount of capital. They can't keep it in CDs and money market funds and treasure bills and savings accounts because they're literally earning zero, and they want to get some kind of a decent return. So how do you approach that problem when clients come to you and say, I want a return, but don't take, want to take any risk? Yeah, great question, and, and that's the question that I get all day, every single day. The, the fact of the matter is that most brokers out there and, and most financial advisors specialize in the stock market, and, if, and, and we're at a point in history where neither stocks nor bonds look good, but there is a whole universe of options that are available that most stockbrokers don't even talk about. Um, there are things like preferred stocks that are currently yielding 5 or 6% but don't have the volatility of the stock market. There are private REITs and public REITs that are currently yielding anywhere between 3 and 6%, depending on which flavor you go with. There are annuities that have income riders out there that guarantee you know 5 6 or 7% for future income. There's uh, individual bonds, not bond funds. Bond funds, I think, are dangerous in this low interest rate environment, but there are individual bonds that have the guaranteed interest rate and have a guaranteed maturity date. So no matter what, you're going to get your principal back as long as the entity is still in business. So there really are a lot of ways out there to get a 4 to 7% yield without the risk of the market. It's just I think the public's been poorly educated about these options, and that's one of the reasons that SAFE exists, is to help educate the public about what they're not that familiar with. Do you t- generally like buying individual securities like preferreds and REITs and so on, or do you like ETFs or mutual funds that have a diversified portfolio of these kind of things? Yeah, I generally like to buy uh, the individuals when it comes to preferreds and when it comes to the REITs. But when it comes to bonds, a lot of times, uh, if you don't have enough money to invest in individual bonds, sometimes the fees can kill you. So I will buy the bonds inside what's called a unit investment trust. A unit investment trust is generally going to steer you away from, a, uh, from, from the volatility that a bond fund might, might have and the risks that a bond fund might have, but still gives you that diversification while helping the investor maintain the two important guarantees, and that's the guaranteed interest rate, and that's the guarantee that at some point in time they'll get their money back. So I like individuals, except for bonds, unless someone has a healthy portfolio. Even then, bonds are okay, but most of the times we buy our bonds in a UIT. Talk about your services a little bit. What is the minimum investment that most people bring uh, to you, and what kind of fees do you charge uh, for, and, and describe a little bit the services you offer at Providence Financial? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Well, our, our primary service is investment advising. Uh, we, we will work with the client, help them advise, uh, help advise them with regards to their portfolio, and that's where we make our living. Now, we are fee-only financial advisors, so generally speaking, we charge anywhere between a half a percent and one and a half percent per year to manage someone's portfolio, just depending on the amount that they bring. I don't have a minimum investment, and, and my philosophy is I'm willing to help anyone that needs help. There are a lot of people that, that, that don't have enough money or, or don't have enough to work with an advisor or feel like they don't have enough, and, and the reality is, is I'm not going to turn someone away. If I hadn't had help along the way, and I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same is true for you know, most advisors out there, that you know, if I hadn't had help along the way, the fact is that I wouldn't be where I'm at today, and I'm just not going to say, hey, guess what, I got a minimum, uh, and, and if you don't meet this minimum, then I'm I'm not willing to help you. Now, with that said, uh, we, we deal with middle-class America. Most of my clients have somewhere between a quarter million dollars to work with all the way up to two million to work with. I've got clients with less, and I've got clients with more, but that's kind of my general range is a quarter million to, to two million dollars. And the other thing that we do for our clients is I, I want to absolutely make sure that our clients are protected no matter what 
harm could come across their way. So instead of just dealing with their money and, and helping protect them from the stock market and inflation and interest rate risk and so on, I like to go a step further with my clients. I want to review their homeowner's policies, but I don't, I don't sell homeowner's insurance. I want to review their auto policy, but I don't sell auto insurance. I want to make sure they have an umbrella policy, but we don't sell that. Um, so, so I'm going to look at every aspect of my client to make sure that nothing can affect them. And if there is something that can affect them, I'm either going to help them or put them in touch with the professional that can make sure that they're protected all the way around. So let's take some of these things individually. Let's start with preferred stocks. Um, so maybe just describe for people who aren't familiar with preferred what a preferred is, uh, why they're so safe, and uh, maybe some industries or specific preferreds that you would like these days. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, preferred stocks is really one of my favorite investments uh, at, at the moment. And a preferred stock is just a different class of stock. Uh, when a company issues common stock, they may or may not pay a dividend with it. And when you hear the news media talking about stock, they're always talking about common stock unless they actually use the word preferred stock. When, when a company issues preferred stock, though, they promise to pay a dividend. So whereas a common stock may or may not pay a dividend, a preferred stock is guaranteed to pay a dividend unless the, unless the company has some trouble down the road. So a preferred stock is often considered by financial advisors to be a hybrid between common stock and bond. It, it, it's it's kind of like common stock in the fact that it's ownership in a company, as stock is, it's equity. But it's kind of like a bond in the fact that it pays a guaranteed dividend, a guaranteed dividend. And so preferred stocks are, are generally not as volatile as common stocks because their value tends to be affected more by the, by the interest rate environment than it does by the stock market. And so they are a lot less volatile. Now, at the same time, back in May of 2013, interest rates went up dramatically. The 10-year note, you, you may remember, went, went up from, uh, I think it was 160 to 290 at the time. It's just a monstrous move in the interest rate, interest rate environment, and yet most, most consumers out there, most investors, didn't really even know what happened. But what happened was, at that time, bonds and preferred stocks dropped in value because they react opposite of interest rates. And even though some of those values have come back, we are still able to get preferred stocks today at a discount for our clients. So instead of buying them at their normal range of $25, we're getting them in the range of maybe $22, $23. So they have a higher yield, but when the market crashes again and when interest rates go up, the volatility for preferred stocks should be a lot less. And so by uh, that's buying one of the reasons them, we like them. Buying them below par, below 25 gives you a bit of insulation on the volatility side, that's, that's what you're saying. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So when the market does crash again, uh, the, 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 they should be insulated to some degree. And what industries do you like preferreds in? Well, 70% of the preferreds are in the financial industry. So you've got a lot of banks that issue preferreds. You've got a lot of brokerage firms that issue preferreds. You've got insurance companies that issue preferreds. But uh, there's a number of preferreds that I like. I, I, I like Wells, For Wells Fargo. I like J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, those are um, institutional. Um, Morgan Stanley has some preferreds. Charles Schwab has some preferreds. Public storage, if you get to outside of finance, have some preferreds. And that's really a REIT that has some preferred stocks. But there's uh, in the financial industry, I think it's a great place to be right now because if interest rates stay the, the, the way that they are or go up, it will benefit the banks and, and other industries that are, that are in the financial, financial arena. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Anthony Saccaro. 
He's the president of Providence Financial and Insurance Services based in Woodland Hills, California. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Anthony Saccaro. He's the president of Providence Financial and Insurance Services based in Woodland Hills, California. Welcome back to the show, Anthony. Thank you, sir. And give people a website if they want to find out more about your firm. Yeah, absolutely. The website is uh, ProvidenceFinancialInc.com. ProvidenceFinancialInc.com. Dot com. And anyone that has any questions about anything I talk about, they're, well, they're welcome to contact us through the website. I'd be more than happy to uh, get back to them one way or the other. Very good. Uh, one of the other topics you wanted to talk about was real estate investment trusts as an alternative to stocks. I mean, they are stocks, but they're institutional real estate. Now, there are public REITs that are traded all the time, and then there are private non-traded REITs. What are the pros and cons? And maybe give us a name or two in the public space and the private space that you would like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the private space, there's a company called Inland America that I, I, I like on a regular basis. I think they've been around for almost 50 years, and I, they have the claim to fame of never having lost a dime for anyone with any of their of their private REITs. But a private REIT and a public REIT are very similar with one caveat, and that is that private REITs are, are non-traded. They're illiquid. And, and the difference, or the primary difference between a private REIT and a public REIT is that you're hoping for a little more growth in the private REIT and a little more security in the private REIT than you are with a, a public REIT. So let me just explain briefly what a private REIT is. 
A private real estate investment trust is an investment in a company for a particular project that that company is going to do. And that company is going to use the investor's money. They're going to go out and do whatever that real estate project is. And then they're going to, at some point in time, cash out the investors towards the end. Now, during the time that they're using your money, they're going to pay you a, a, a dividend. And, and the dividend that we're getting for our clients right now is 6%. But it doesn't have to be. It could be somewhere in that range. And then at the end of, uh, of the project, which, which in Inland's case is usually five to seven years, at, they're going to uh, find a way to cash out the investors, and whatever profit there is, if there is any, is going to be shared back with the investors. We actually just had a, a five-year REIT close out, and our investors got another 7% on the back end, in addition to the 6% that they had been getting all along. So it's a nice way to be able to own real estate and participate in the, the advantages of real estate without having to be a landlord. And now, when the private REIT wants to cash out the investors, there's a lot of ways they can do that. They can break up their real estate and sell it, or they can go public. All this time, the private investors have owned stock in a private company, so they're private investors. And, and just like any private company that wants to cash the investors out, they can go public. They do an IPO, and they list their stock on a public exchange. So in this situation, if that's what the REIT decides to do, they will list their stock publicly, and now the public can come in and buy out the private investors, and then that stock becomes a publicly traded stock and will wind up, in fact, uh, trading on, on uh, a big board somewhere, on an exchange somewhere, and still paying a 5 or 6% dividend. Now, the nice thing is, is if you don't want to lock your money up in a private REIT, you can always buy a stock in a, in a company that that has already gone public, that's already gone through the process, and you can buy it today and sell it tomorrow. It's completely liquid, and, of course, what you're going to get is going to depend on whatever the market price is of that of that REIT. So what and, would be some of your favorite public REITs right now? You know, there's a couple of them. Um, I like the ones that are in the medical field. I like the ones that are in... Uh, nursing homes and hospitals, because quite frankly, I think there's, there's a lot of people that are getting older, and we know that the baby boomers are starting to get into retirement. So I think that the medical REITs are, are probably a good way to go. I also think that apartment REITs and, and commercial REITs are a good way to go as well, too, um, especially if we see the economy start to continue to strengthen. I, I think five or ten years down the road, the commercial REITs are going to be vastly higher than they are today because it, we know that in ten years the economy will be stronger than it is today. At least that's the hope. Let's talk about annuities briefly. Um, now, there are annuities uh, that have uh, certain interest rates, but they also have surrender charges if you get out of them the first few years. What are the pros and cons of annuities, and what are some of the issuers that you like in the annuity field? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the reality is, is that when we talk about annuities, annuities cover a broad range of, of investment. There's immediate annuities that it's an annuity where essentially you give money, a chunk of change, a, a lump sum to an, insur an, an insurance company, and they give you a guaranteed income for life. And that's, that's the kind of annuity that, will, that although it will pay you an income for life, you lose control of your principal. So most people don't have that kind of annuity. The other kinds of annuities are, are going to be investments. And there are variable annuities that allow you to invest in the stock market or bond market or whatever fund is there. And with the variable annuity, the investor takes the majority of the risk. Actually, I should say all of the risk uh, is placed on the investor's shoulder. You can make money with it. You can lose money with it. And on top of that, they're very expensive, generally running, often running between 3 and 4% a year. So I'm not a big fan of variable annuities in any way, shape, or form. Now, on the other hand, you've got fixed annuities 
and indexed annuities. And fixed annuities will pay you a fixed rate of return. Today, they're generally paying 3 to 4%. Um, and indexed annuities will pay you a rate of return based on what the stock market does. So if the stock market goes up, you make some money. But if the stock market goes down, you don't lose any money. Now, if that was the end of the story, it'd be too good to be true. So, so there's a, there's a trade-off. And the trade-off is that because the insurance company is insuring you from downside loss when the market does go down, when the market goes up, they don't give you the full thing. So the fact is that you share in the gains with the insurance company, but none of the losses. And this is generally how annuities work. Some of these annuities have income riders that allow you to get income guaranteed for life, which is one of the reasons they're also known as income insurance. And that's in addition to the fact that you make money based on the stock market. What would be some of the favorite issuers in the index annuities that you're favoring these days? You know, uh, my personal favorite, I've got about a half a dozen that I can work with on a, on a regular basis, but my personal favorite is a company out of Des Moines called American Equity. Uh, $33 billion under assets, 15th fastest growing company in the world right now, and their bond portfolio and their real estate portfolio is just second to none. They are extremely well diversified. They're a younger company, and that tends to scare some investors, but they're very, very well managed. Now, in addition to American Equity, another company that I think does really well in the index annuity market is uh, Allianz. Allianz has a wonderful portfolio as well. The challenge with Allianz, though, is they're over in Europe, and, and they have that European division, which, of course, is being hurt by everything that's going on over there. American Equity is strictly a U.S. company, and I think that's actually uh, an added layer of protection for the investors that are, that are with American Equity. Another topic I want to touch on briefly is uh, IRAs. You've got a lot on your uh, website about rolling over 401ks and Roth IRAs. What are some of the biggest mistakes that people make in allocating money between traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs? Yeah, I think overall the biggest mistake that people make is trying to do it without themselves. Uh, the biggest mistakes that we see are from clients who have done something wrong that now causes a part of their 401k or IRA to become taxable. And, and it, it could be something just as having a wrong box checked on the application where you move money into what you think is an IRA, but it's not because the box didn't get checked. And, and sometimes that's irrevocable depending on whose fault it is. Now, outside of that, one of the biggest mistakes that we see is people putting too much in their 401ks. If you go through life and you add to your 401k and you don't save anything outside of your 401k, when it comes to retirement and you have a sizable 401k but nothing else, now all of a sudden every dollar you take out of there might be taxed at 40 or 50 percent depending on your tax bracket. And, and, and if you want to buy a $50,000 car, you might have to take out $75,000 or more to be able to pay taxes on that to be able to spend $50,000 for a car. So really, I think you need to, as you're, as you're moving forward in life, you need to not put everything into your 401k. Certainly you want to contribute what the company matches, but anything over that, I would, I would, I would highly recommend doing a little bit of analysis to see how much in your 401k you'll have when you retire versus how much that will not be in your 401k. When you have a choice up front, would it be better to do the Roth and put in after-tax dollars or to do a traditional and get a deduction up front? Yeah, generally speaking, that's going to depend on your tax bracket. Uh, I think if you're in a higher tax bracket, I think doing some of each is probably a good idea. I, I think having an immediate tax break now is not bad, but also uh, paying some tax now is not bad either. But if you're in a lower tax bracket, a Roth IRA could very well be the way to go. And you want to talk with your accountant on this because uh, we had a client in here the other day that had so many write-offs that they did not pay any taxes at all, and yet they were contributing to an IRA. 
And that makes absolutely no sense because now you're essentially tax deferring something that you got no benefit on up front and you could have tax free down the road, but the way that she had the way that she did it is it means it's all going to be taxed down the road at some point. Do you put all the uh, vehicles we're talking about, preferreds, REITs, annuities, inside IRAs, or annuity, which is already tax-deferred, you keep outside of an IRA? Oh, no. I, I actually like annuities inside IRAs better than I like them outside IRAs. And the reason is, is because of that income insurance component that we talked about. You think about IRAs. IRAs and retirement plans are designed solely for income. I mean, I mean if you have a half-million-dollar retirement account, you're going to use that for income. You're not going to take chunks of money out, out of that at a time unless you just have no choice. And annuities, because they're income insurance, they're also designed for income. You tend to lock your money up for a period of time, usually 10 years or longer, and yet they offer the component that will give you a higher amount of income per dollar than any other investment out there on a guaranteed basis. That's just extremely true. And so if you can take an annuity that is designed to pay you income and marry it with an IRA that's made specifically for income, I think those are an absolutely wonderful blend. Very good. So in, in wrapping up, what are some of the biggest mistakes people make in planning for retirement when they get there and they're taxed, they have their money in the wrong place? What are some of the biggest mistakes you see as people are preparing for retirement? Yeah, well, one of the biggest mistakes is not properly working with Social Security. Uh, there's a lot of philosophies out there, and, and most people take their decision about Social Security very lightly. In other words, they've heard from someone somewhere that they should take it at 62, or that they shouldn't take it at 62. They should wait till 66. Or, wait a second, no, we should take it at 70. And there's all these different things. And, and the reality is that Social Security is extremely complex. We use software for our clients to determine when and how they should take their Social Security. But if someone takes the, the, their distribution in the wrong order, in other words, if they take IRA money when they should not be, or if they take their Social Security too early and they don't wait longer than they should, that's going to have an impact on their lifetime income of sometimes more than two hundred dollars or $300,000 just by taking income in the wrong way. And I see that happen all the time, and that's what we caution our clients against and help them avoid. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Anthony Sicaro. He's the president of Providence Financial and Insurance Services based in Woodland Hills, California. Uh, the website to find out more about him is ProvidenceFinancialInc.com. Thanks so much for giving us some very good ideas on retirement planning and income, Anthony. Thank you, Jordan. And we'll be back after this with another guest. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. 
Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Louise Phillips Forbes, uh, who is one of the leading real estate uh, brokers in Manhattan, uh, New York. Uh, her website is louisephillipsforbes.com. Welcome back. Welcome to the show, Louis. Louise. Thank you so much. So glad to be here today, Jordan. Let's just start with your background a little bit and uh, what you've, uh, the experience you've had and leading to where you are today. Well, I was born, I have a little bit of a Southern accent for some of our Southern listeners. I was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. I moved here in 1988 to New York City seeking the lights of New York and Broadway. I came here to be a dancer. And like many people before me, I came in through the back door to real estate, pretty much armed with nothing but work ethic and discipline and a passion for people. I knew I was home, and I have found myself 25 years later. I have sold close to $2 billion worth of real estate. I have done the on-site marketing sales for development projects of over 30, and this is my passion. So you're doing mostly new buildings, or you're doing existing property mostly? Well, I have done both ground-up marketing for ground-up new construction, as well as converting existing beautiful pre-war buildings to, that were rentals and uh, converted them to condominiums. All right, well, let's talk about some of the trends in real estate. Uh, the first one is the millennial generation. Now, you have people getting out of college uh, you know, minimum wage jobs are not doing great, having huge amounts of student loan debt. Over half of them are going back and living at home. How are they going to be able to buy homes uh, if, if they've got this huge amount of student loan uh, debt and, and not great paying jobs? Well, I'm going to step back for just a moment for our listeners. Uh, I'd like to just define our millennial generation with a few pieces of, of facts about the generation because these are individuals that are born from 1982 to 2002. It is America's largest generation. It makes up 81 million individuals of our population, 24%. So this is our first generation that have been plugged into technology since they were babies. So how they are in the housing market, let's sort of transition to that. Um, We definitely have some challenges with this generation, but I am the ultimate optimist optimist in looking at who they are as individuals because 27% of this generation are already self-employed. 
and their access to technology and their ability to navigate it, to navigate it, it is what has been facilitating their recovery much quicker than any other generation. So, uh, okay, so they're able to do technology. Now, how does that re- relate to real estate? I mean, you see these online places like Zillow and Trulia and so on. So one would think maybe a real estate agent is not as necessary as in the past when they can just do their tours and look at these things all online. Well, they, my own personal experience around um, today's technology is that when individuals think that, you know, for most people, buying and selling real estate, it is one of the biggest financial commitments they make in their life. So relying on just the computer, data you know, is data, but the power of the knowledge is what it means in the subtleties. And so I think it's having access to the knowledge and real-time data is amazing for getting started. But my experience is nine out of ten times money is left on the table. So what kind of mistakes are people making by just going onto the websites, finding something, and buying it directly without using an agent? Um. I'm going to start with, with sellers. I think sometimes sellers, uh, you know, I think nobody will deny your, your home is something that you take very personally. Most sellers feel that their homes are more valuable than they actually are. And sometimes when you're looking at national data, it is not your backyard. Looking at specifically your zip code and looking at those sales and keeping it local is going to be much more powerful and getting all of that knowledge and then actually reaching out to your real estate brokers to understand and get them to help you interpret the information. You may find that you connect with somebody that understands you and gets you and you don't need, you will recognize that they will earn their keep for you. Mm-hmm. And then on the, how about on the buyer side? On the buy side, I, I mean, to me, I, I, I think it forces brokers to be transparent. I love it. I mean, I, again, I, I feel I don't want to be at the right place at the right time. I want to earn my keep. Now, I feel like it is such a privilege to be a part of this process for individuals. Uh, after all, for myself, my home is literally where the rest of my world is built from. And so for to be able to be a broker for buyers, I feel like I, I am an educator before I am a salesperson. So you help both sides? You, you help buyers and sellers, or do you work one side or the other more? Um, I, when I started in the business with my zero Rolodex, I was a buyer's broker 110%. But as I've sold people their homes. I mean, 90% of my business today is personal relationships. I probably do between 100 and 150 million a year. So you're doing, you're representing sellers then as well as buyers at this point? Yes, sir. Very good. Okay. So let's also talk about real estate as an investment for retirees. Now, a lot of people, it's the main asset they've got, but once they get to uh, retirement, they probably have a bigger home than they need. They want to downsize. Uh, maybe get into a condo, is that, I mean, some people are saying when the baby boom gets to retirement, which is now, there's going to be too many houses, big houses that the millennial generation or generation extras are not particularly want to buy. They're, they're bigger homes than they really need. So what's going to happen demographically when all these baby boomers retire? Well, I, I think that, that I'm going to just sort of 
sort of defined for our, I know we just had a uh, specialist talking about retiring. I'm going to quickly just mention that the top three investments for this age group are fixed income investment, annuities, and real estate. And I personally believe that real estate is the holy grail of investments. It takes a long-term investment and diverse portfolio to build true wealth. And real estate will and always has been part of that equation. So empty nesters that we're experiencing, you know, have, that are migrating, they've raised their children in the suburbs and they're coming to the city, to the city with tremendous amount of profits. Some of them are buying something in the city smaller and many of them are tucking some of their profits into income-producing real estate. And this gives them a number of sort of different kinds of uh, advantages. So, so what, what, endowed, go ahead. What would be the advantage of real estate over stocks as a long-term investment? Well, I mean, those to me are very simple, but, uh, but I will just say, first and foremost, the growth in value, which, of course, is tax-free. You have cash flow opportunities because of depreciation, mortgage, interest deductions. Your cash flow should be tax-free. And increases in tax deduction strategies, sort of this provides the investors another creative opportunity to convert personal expenses that are valid for, for a business expense, you know, management fee. My sister owns a couple of uh, investment properties in Nashville, Tennessee, and she charges the business for her time, travel time, gas time, management fee. It's all legitimate. Yes, indeed. So you can get tax breaks out of it. Uh, as far as appreciation, I mean, we've had a very benign environment here where we've had very low interest rates uh, for a long period of time, but real estate can go down as well as up. Uh, if interest rates were to rise, that's something people would have to deal with. Well, I, on my own personal experience, I can look exactly in my market and tell you that today what we witnessed, the pause button that a lot of America experienced with the subprime mortgage crisis in 2008, we were on a pause button for about 9 to 12 months, and we have recovered at massive rates. You know, there, there are... Not, not only are we seeing, uh, there are people that have, that are still in the black, if you will, or in the red in some parts of the country. But for the long term, I, you know, I believe that we're going to be seeing individuals continue to feel optimism. You know, interest rates are at the lowest point that they've been since 1971, hovering around 4%. When I got in the business, interest rates in 1989 were 12.5%. And pre-Lehman collapse, they were 5.75%. So the buying power is there. Now, it is harder for people to get mortgages today than before the financial crisis because of the Dodd-Frank and the various other regulations. Some would say it's only the top end of the population that's able to get into the housing market because people don't have down payments, they don't got credit scores, uh, they're not able to qualify for decent mortgages these days. Are you saying that? I'm seeing that, that, that they're healthy restraints and standards that have been placed that do not allow people who can't afford to be over-leveraged. I think that's healthy. That does not necessarily negate individuals from being able to buy. I mean, listen, let's talk about the millennial generation in general. 
I, I mean, I have a trend of individuals who are buying for their children, and they are co-buying it in their names, and they're gifting a portion each year to their child. So, in other words, they're they're like the institution. They're holding the mortgage, and then they're forgiving a certain amount of that amount that's allowed annually from a tax-giving stand, standpoint. Indeed. Um, now, you're particularly in the New York City uh, market. Uh, some would say that the majority of the reason real, real estate in New York is doing so well is not Americans, but foreign buyers. Are you seeing a lot of foreign money coming in buying these apartments you're offering? Yes, but I don't think as much as the media is expanding on. that We've always had, you know, a healthy, diverse group of buyers, wealthy Mexican, Russians, Greeks, people that want Indians who want to have their children educated in America, and they bought smaller investment properties. I think what's happened is that we're seeing foreign money. For the first time, New York City has entered into this international platform where it is a placeholder for wealthy people to hold assets, and we're not looking at a million dollars. We're looking at $90 million, $88 million, $30 million. And those numbers are just, you know, quite different. Indeed they are. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest for this half hour is Louise Phillips Forbes. Uh, she is in the real estate field in New York City. Her website is louisephillipsforbes.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Louise Phillips-Forbes, who is a real estate broker and agent in New York City. Uh, her website is louisephillipsforbes.com. Welcome back to the show, Louise. Thank you, Jordan. So we were talking about New York City a little bit and all this foreign money that's coming in. Do you think, I mean, some people would say this is a bubble. You have all these foreign money coming in and pushing up these ridiculous prices, in many cases to buildings that haven't even been occupied yet. They're kind of speculating on this. Is, is this the sign of the top? Well, I think what we have is that there is a phenomenon that's occurring in New York specific, and I'm just going to remind you that when we had the collapse of Bear Stearns, when we had the collapse of Lehman, the entire country's eyes were towards New York City, because when we move, the rest will follow. And the phenomenon that we're experiencing in our luxury market right now is that if you build it, they will come. We have lost a lot of our boundaries around good neighborhoods, and people are just grateful and happy to be owning and living in New York City. There's an interesting phenomenon that I have learned about my markets in New York. 62% of our entire housing market in Manhattan proper are rentals. Only 38% of New Yorkers own, just like that millennial statistic. And of the 38%, 25 are co-ops. Some places in this country do not even have co-ops, which is a different product than condominium. Co-ops, I'm just going to take a moment for our listeners just to define, it's basically owning shares of a business, where, but, you're, but it's a building, and it operates just like a business. You you. It costs so much to have your insurance, to have your underlying mortgage, your mortgage, uh, as well as your real estate taxes, but it's divided by all the shareholders of that building. And whereas the condominium has no underlying mortgage and it's brick and mortar, a deed that you own. Back to my question, though. Do you think that all this money that's coming in is too frothy? I mean, you've seen this happen before. There There are big downtimes and... New York City real estate, 1974 and 2008 and so on. I mean, if people are buying it at these levels at 20 and $30 million for an apartment, is this excessive? Uh, I, I Actually, I don't. I do think that we have, listen, there may be only so many 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar buyers, but the fact that that's opened up our, to our international audience is some of our absorption rate. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a bit about if you're negotiating for a home offer and, and you like a place, what are some tips that you would give to buyers uh, to, so that they don't overpay? I think first and foremost, you need to put your team together. You need to be informed. You need to know your market. And as, you, as we talked about with technology, knowledge is power. And having your real estate broker provide you sold and closed information. And more importantly for me today, because I have a market that's moving very quickly, I need to know what things are in contract for because what closed is not even the current market. 
don't be afraid to have your real estate broker earn their keep and understand before you start your process to be disciplined about the money you're going to spend. Now, as far as, uh, say you're in a hot market as New York is now, uh, and you're getting into a bidding war, there's a lot, and that probably happens with you a lot. There's multiple bids on a particular property. I have three of them today. So how does a buyer deal with that? Do they have to walk away or they have to go in and just keep bidding and hire? How does a buyer deal with that situation? Well, I think the most important component that I can say is that you have to be transparent, prepared, and informed to move quickly. I have always, I, you know, people make fun of some of the things I say. It's like, you know, you're not buying a T-shirt, you're buying a home. So let's be prepared and understand what your limits are. And don't not putting a low ball in. And, you know, I, I just wrote a letter today to one of my, to, to, for one of my buyers. She wrote a letter to the seller, and she is going to let them know all about her because they want to make it personal. And sometimes that little is just a little trick to make it a person not be a number, but be a human being. And always in today's market, cash is king. Sellers love all cash offers. In many cases, people are closing and refinancing at a later date. But again, that's kind of for the tip of the, the, the market. I mean, the average person is going to need a mortgage these days. So they're competing against uh, cash-rich foreigners in many cases. And are you no, seeing corp- no, corporations as well? Rich, not not necessarily. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cash here in the United States and in New York specific specifically. So none of these bids that I'm discussing with you at this very moment have anything to do with the foreign money. They are all New York specific or people relocating who've sold their homes from different locations, whether it's from Westchester or from San Francisco, but they they are relocating here, and the market is quick. Are you seeing uh, corporations buying homes? Maybe not as much New York City apartments, but around the country, because uh, a, a lot of the, the sales have been all cash, which tends to be investors as opposed to uh, people going to be living there. Uh, the last three transactions that I've closed on are individual homes, and they are all cash sales. That is just my own personal experience, Jordan. So uh, they're not always investors. But on an overall national basis, is that on a, a trend you, you basis, see is going to clear? Yes. I would agree with you on a national basis. But, you know, again, it's fine to, to, to finance. Just make sure that if, if it's a competitive situation, then you've worked with your attorney and your mortgage person to see if you can offer it to be non-contingent but that you plan to borrow the money. So going into a a bidding process, if you're representing the buyer, you have the price they're willing to bid, but then you have an upper limit that they're willing to go. Is that the way you go into a negotiation? Well, I mean, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, 90% of my business happens to be personal relationships. So I make it my business to know them inside and out. I know what makes them tick and I know their limitations. And, so because I've also helped in many cases for them to put together their team of attorneys and mortgage people, um, I do believe that it is um, important to understand all, not just the dollar, but the terms. I mean, for someone who's identified, if you're a seller and you've identified that perfect apartment that you want to buy, but you can't do it until you sell, then I need to know that information as their broker 
so that I could leverage it and use it as one of the terms. You've talked a lot about building a team. What are some of the things people should look for in getting a good real estate agent? Because there's a lot of people in this field, a lot of new people in this field are kind of a changing mix. What are some of the things people should look for to get a good real estate agent? I'm, I'm kind of relationally driven. I'm wired. I, I need to, I look for and I recommend someone to look for a personal and emotional connection. This is a very personal uh, experience. You're, you're, like I said, you're not buying a T-shirt. It is one of the most intimate, personal experience, particularly in New York City, because, you know, I, I was raised in the South, and, you know, we never, I was raised to never talk about money. It's almost the second question I ask. Hi, how are you? What's your name? What do you make? How much, how much are you worth? I mean, it's the, the strangest phenomenon, but it is part of making sure that they can afford what they are trying to buy, and you have to be able to sell them. Do you think people are buying more real estate than they can afford? They're stretching too much in many cases today? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, we, we govern our most of the business that I do runs at a debt ratio of 25%. That means if somebody is trying to purchase an apartment, I want their debt to be no more than 25% of their income. So let's say they make $120,000 a year. That's $10,000 a month. So their mortgage and their maintenance should be no more than 2500 Yeah, that makes an awful lot of sense. Very good. Well, it's been very informative. Uh, people can find out more at your website, which is Louise Phillips with two L's, uh, Forbes.com. Uh, tell us briefly what some of the things they can find at that website, Louise. Well, you will see a lot of New York City real estate, a lot of videos where I am showing some of our newest listings today, and I will look forward to hearing from any of my listeners today. I'm grateful for having the opportunity to be with you today. Well, thanks so much. My guest has been Louise Phillips Forbes. Again, her website is louisephillipsforbes.com, a prominent real estate broker in New York City. Thanks so much for being on the show, Louise. Have a great day. Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.